This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So at one level, silence is the absence of noise. But there's also a deeper level of silence that we encounter. And that's the silence that's more than an absence. It's a presence unto itself. You know, it's this space of letting go, of accepting that it's okay to not fill the space. It's good to just be. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. We live in a loud world that's getting louder. We encounter noise all around us. From the chatter of polite conversations to street noise in a big city, there's actually construction going on on the street behind me, to the constant intrusion of the dings of notifications. I don't need to tell you this, you're on a device listening to a podcast. But what is all of this noise doing to us? And what does it mean to find quiet in the midst of it? In fact, what is silence anyway? How can it affect our minds, our bodies, and our relationships? I'm going to discuss that today with the authors of a terrific new book called Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. Justin Talbot Zorn has been a policymaker and a meditation teacher in the United States Congress. He's a Harvard and Oxford trained specialist in the economics and psychology of well-being. He's written for publications including the Washington Post, The Atlantic, Harvard Business Review, Time, and CNN. He's also a co-founder of Astrea Strategies, a consultancy that bridges deep vision with impactful communications and action. Justin, it's great to meet you. Welcome to Politicology. So good to be here, Ron. Thank you. And we're also joined by Lee Mars. Lee is a collaboration consultant and a leadership coach for major universities, corporations, and federal agencies. She's a longtime student of researchers and practitioners of ritualized use of psychedelic medicines in the West. Lee has led a training program to promote an experimental mindset among teams at NASA and a decade-long cross-sector collaboration to reduce toxic chemicals in products in partnership with Green Science Policy Institute. Harvard University, IKEA, Google, and Kaiser Permanente. She is also a co-founder of Estrella Strategies. Lee, thank you for making the time. Welcome to Politicology. Thank you so much, Ron. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's shift gears a little bit to um, some more political topics. Um, restructuring society. You cover this in the book um, because this is a political podcast after all. <laughs> <laughs> so... I um, have had the authors of a book called System Error on a couple of times. They're um, 
three Stanford professors. They write about how the obsession with optimization and efficiency is reshaping our values because we spend so much time with technology and these values are baked into both the hardware and the software that we keep with us all the time. One of the solutions you put forward is actually to start with values in assessing technology. Can you talk a little bit about that, Lee? And I told you I'd bring this back to the Amish. Um, What is their approach to adopting technology? Oh, the Amish versus the Quakers. Yeah. We, oh, right. Maybe I'll yeah, speak yeah, to the yeah. Am- you want me to speak to the Amish, you speak to the you Quakers? Speak to the Either Amish. one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or I'll speak to the Amish. Lee can speak to the Quakers. <laughs> 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 you know, we found in, in studying the public policy ideas in this book, we found that everything we thought we knew about the Amish was pretty much wrong. You know, contrary to public, you know, popular belief that that they're all about you know, opposing any kind of technology. The truth is that they actually have a deeply rigorous process of assessing whether or not a technology is going to be a net benefit given their cultural values. And yes, they have different, much more conservative cultural values than our culture at large. But essentially what they do is when there's a new technology Someone in the community will come and ask the elders for permission to try out the new technology. And then that first adopter, that person who asks, will oftentimes get permission. So, like, say it's a cell phone. That first adopter, that person who asks, can we use this technology, will try it out for some months, maybe even a year. And people in the community will pay attention and they'll report back to the elders They'll say, well, is this making the person's work more efficient? Is it helping them communicate? Is it good for their safety? But they'll also ask questions like, is it making them more self-centered? How's it affecting their personality? How's it affecting their work ethic? So what the Amish typically do is they start with their own values, which again, more conservative than ours. But they start with those values as a culture And then they do experiments to assess whether or not it's appropriate to adopt a new technology based on whether that technology will truly bring benefits that outweigh the costs. So when we think, for example, of, you know, Facebook and Instagram adopting the like button, you know, quick decision that we never even really thought about, huge implications for our society as a whole, for the mental health of children and teenagers, suicide rates, rates of addiction, rates of depression. But we didn't even think about it. We just said, well, it's just a little button. What could it do? That's technology. That's the free market. It's, you know, it's not really a, you know, question of, you know, whether or not market mechanisms should work. It's just a question of whether or not we should assess questions like, what is this technology? What is this this very scalable technology going to do with respect to what we really care about as a society? So we actually, we had a piece that almost ran in the Wall Street Journal op-ed page, and then they decided that was a little too much, saying that we need a kind of FDA for technology, and that that was a little too unfree market. But, you know, for us, this isn't really on one side of the political spectrum or the other. You know, because if you look at it these days, it's conservatives, yes, social conservatives, but, you know, talking about our society becoming unhinged from from values, 
you know, when we have progressives talking about the excesses of, of corporations, you know, like those policy, you know, like just allowing a you know, decision, like the implementation of the like button without any review, for example. So it's something we found. This interest in human attention is something that isn't just kind of mushy middle bipartisan. It's something that really in a deep way has potential to unite people in different, different parts of the political spectrum. Yeah. Lee, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, because the attention economy is something I think of constantly. Uh, the, the, the way it seems like almost all of our economic world now revolves around exploiting this scarcest resource that there is, right? The only thing that there really is, is attention. And I, I wonder how you think about that. Um, Especially because, you know, it seems to me that this doesn't necessarily, in order to be transformative, this idea doesn't have to be written into statute, right? This There can be a cultural shift as well. Um, we I had a conversation recently about um, First Amendment protections and how the culture of free speech is actually more important than the law around free speech. Um, and so I wonder how you think about those things, but, um, but also maybe share a bit about the Quakers and their tradition. So this entire book is really about appreciating silence. And, and when we say that, we're talking about silence in that auditory way, but also that pristine attention. And when I think about how, or when we think about how our pristine attention is completely unvalued, just like a pristine red forest, redwood forest, you know, unless it's cut down and chopped up and sold at Home Depot as lumber, our human attention is also not valued unless it's commoditized to, you know, eyeballs on a screen and clicks through and all that kind of stuff. And you asked me, when you asked me, how do I feel about that? I have to say like some rage, outrage came in actually, because this is of the utmost importance. This is freedom, the ability to place our attention where we intend in our lifetime, set to our purpose, our values, what we love, what we care about. I feel pretty outraged, actually. <laughs> it's absurd. It's not working. Yeah, it's not working for us. And so this, the, you know, as we've been talking, I've been thinking about this wholeness, you know, the default has been so pressed to the tyranny of the fastest and the loudest and the quickest to respond and the content and all this stuff you were talking about in terms of efficiency. And yes, that you keep going along that trajectory and those things maybe have some good attributes to them, but you know, you keep going to an extreme and then we're just an entirely different galaxy. And I'm, I don't want that galaxy. I don't want to be in that galaxy. <laughs> you know, so this is about wholeness, about appreciating silence for all that it brings as well. There's this ancient Japanese principle called ma, M-A. The kanji character is a gate where the sunlight is pouring through the slats of that gate. And throughout Japanese arts, the like ikibana flower arrangement, there's this emphasis on, of course, the flowers and the petals and the branches, but also the empty space around that that makes it so beautiful. Or the scroll paintings where there's always a lot of blank open space as well as that swoosh of the paintbrush. 
Same is true in haiku and all kinds of things, and also in conversation. Oftentimes, you'll notice more pauses between conversation. And so we really want to bring ma to all kinds of aspects of our lives, our family life, our time with ourselves as we schedule it. My goodness, you know, back to back to back. Like that's ma to our schedule, ma to our relationships, ma to the workplace, ma to Washington. <laughs> we want to see it everywhere. I don't know if that gets at your exact I would, question. I would, but I would love for you yeah. to bring some more ma to Washington. Okay. <laughs> we have a chapter. Need it. We have a chapter of the book called Ma Goes to Washington. <laughs> it's great. And Lee, I feel like that, you know, that what we were talking about with the Amish and the Quakers, that that idea of the Quaker meeting really gets to the idea of ma as a way to resolve conflict, help to resolve conflict without censorship. Do you want to speak to that a little mm-hmm. bit? Yeah, what the Quakers really teach us about, and you know, they're deep devotees to to silence, and they sit in silence quite a bit, and it's really a transformative space. Really, there's so much faith in what can happen in silence, what how things merge differently, and it definitely um, speaks to something we learned through this process that the power of silence is magnified when it's shared. So they're there to be silent together. And the problem, for example, if they're in their more typical meeting structures, which is looks a lot like their times of worship, but it's a meeting for the purpose of business, they'll also use silence. They'll be, say, in a difficult conversation, in conflict, arguing about something, the clerk will sense that things have gotten polarized and people are not, you know, they're not really open to influence. And they'll call for silence. And in that time period, the person we spoke with, uh, Rob Livingcott, who's a birthweight Quaker, he said, you know, just that stepping back, maybe getting reconnected, he might get re- reconnected to why is it important to resolve this? Why are we here to do this together? And the silence will transform that space. And he may notice that someone else says something along the lines, but much clearer, he'll point out, <laughs> of what he was thinking, you know, less charged or whatever. And then the group will make it make their way to a decision, to a resolution. It's a space called threshing, you know, the wheat from the chef. So that place of discernment, we're really interested in how silence offers us an opportunity to discern what is true and what is noise, frankly. Um, Yeah, and the Quakers have been doing that for decades, and so we look to them for those teachings. I also think it's beautiful the way you present this power in silence um, with the richness of ancient wisdom traditions and, and religious traditions, but divorced from the need to believe in anything, right? There is no religious baggage or, uh, or anything that comes along with this very simple transformative uh, practice. And I think that's important for people to recognize when you know when i've talked about meditation to people they they tend to think of it as an outcropping of buddhism or or some belief driven religious conviction and it isn't um and at least it doesn't have to be for some people it may be but um but the technology if i may of silence is uh is is its own thing um and i think that's one of the things you do so beautifully in the book um one of the other 
ideas you have for structuring society to preserve attention is um, to rethink how we measure the economy and to measure quality instead of quantity. And this made me flash back to a conversation I have had both on mic and off mic with um, an old friend and uh, and, uh, client of mine, Carly Fiorina, about the corrosive incentives uh, this quantitative short-termism creates for publicly traded companies, right? That is um, making business decisions based on juicing quarterly growth figures instead of optimizing for, say, stability or longevity or intended outcomes. Um, It would seem, right, that as information speeds up and data become increasingly real-time, that short-term quantitative measures will only become more dominant. Um, That's the trend line that we're on. That's the direction it's going. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, both of you, about quality instead of quantity in terms of economic measurements. And do you have real hope that a measurable transformation can take place on that front, given the the massive incentive structure um, that is built around the economy? And if so, I'd love to, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. What you're saying Ron, reminds me of a, a, a beloved figure in the book, Cyrus Habib, who's son of Iranian immigrants, went blind when he was around eight years old and then learned Braille and made it through high school, then Columbia, Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar and Yale Law School, became the lieutenant governor of Washington State when he was in his mid-30s. And then he shocked everybody by declaring that his next career move was taking a vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience as a novice Jesuit priest. And Frank Bruni in the New York Times said, politician takes sledgehammer to own ego. And Cyrus is someone who gives us a... Cyrus is someone who gives us a, a tour of the noise of modern politics and then what it's like to leave the noise of modern politics and go off and sit in silence. And how when he did that, when Cyrus left the lieutenant governor's office and went and started meditating and studying the the uh, preliminary prayers and teachings of the Jesuits right in the end of 2020, he noticed his mind was still so noisy. It was like he was on a total elimination diet with respect to auditory and informational noise, but he was still dealing with these heaping hearty servings of internal noise. Until one day he realized that the way forward, the way to stop dealing with all that noise was to get out of the mode whereby he was judging his self-worth on what other people thought of him on the need to perform to other people's expectations, of the need to generate noise and information constantly, and to tune into where he could get to a place where he could be happy with the quality of the present moment. And he said something to us. He used this this poetic way of speaking, pretty rare in politics, the way he speaks. And he said, the opportunity for us is to become connoisseurs of creation. And when we think about that, the meaning of that, it's like, gosh, what are the implications of that for the sustainability of our society? You know, climate and water, for example, you know, if we could be in a place where we're connoisseurs of all of creation and the flavors of food, you know, we're not going to be consuming like we are, (laughs) you know, we're not going to be valuing quantity over quality in every way. 
And, you know, Lee mentioned before this idea that, you know, in the way we measure progress as a society, you know, if you, if you cut down a pristine forest, that counts as a positive according to GDP. But if you leave it intact, it doesn't because GDP is a short-term measure of industrial output. So there's no industrial output in appreciating the beauty of a forest. And as Lee was mentioning before, you could say the same thing about human attention. If you leave it intact, it doesn't count as anything for GDP. But if you chop it up and turn it into those eyeballs on the Facebook page that generates advertising revenue, that's a plus. Not just according to how we measure industrial output as a society, but how we measure progress as a society. Because we use that as the de facto indicator of the business cycle and in turn, how a president or prime minister in a country is doing, how a society is doing. So it's this whole system of, you know, sometimes when you say like, oh, the system is rigged, man, it sounds kind of conspiratorial. But what we're talking about here is simply metrics. The metrics we have in place are metrics that amp up the maximum possible noise. But to your question, you know, we're, we're actually pretty optimistic here. Actually, the, the White House announced recently that the Bureau of Economic Analysis and, and the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the White House are going to be working on new measures of environmental resource stocks. And it's something that economists have been working to develop and, and statisticians and some computer scientists, as well as ecologists, have been working to develop since the 1970s. So alongside GDP, how do we measure our environmental resources? And how do we how do we synthesize that into easily understandable kind of metrics that could be alongside GDP? And when we get to the end of the book, it's actually in the Ma Goes to Washington chapter where we look at what it would mean for politics and government to appreciate silence. In that chapter of the book, we look at what would it mean if we started measuring GDP not as a single indicator, but as a as a set of different indicators, a graduated set of indicators, the way we currently measure consumer price index or the money supply, you know, it's not just one, but it's, it's a variety of different indicators that we could look to. So what if we had G1, G2, G3, with G1 being standard GDP, but then going up to G2 and G3 and G4, which is adjusted for the things that we value. We're not saying adjusted willy-nilly, you know, according to what makes a politician looks good. It needs to be, it needs to be an independent process. But things that we can agree upon that we value. Because it just doesn't make sense that GDP often goes up, you know, with rises in crime, because that means more work to buy locks, fancier locks on the doors or you know, incarcerate people or whatever that might mean. That kind of thing just doesn't make sense. So we look at some ways to do that with respect to something, you know, back to what we were talking about before, that, that resonates with people across political ideologies, which is the value of pristine attention. Yeah, Lee... <laughs> I'd love to know what you think about this because to me it returns us to the question of shifting values. Um, and, you know, there's the there's the cliche about what gets measured gets managed, right? And clearly, um, if we're not measuring things like attention as something we value as a country, um, 
then it, there's nothing, right? There, there will be no you know, systemic change, at least not at the governmental level. But I, I think this brings us back to um, a personal um, value, a personal uh, premium being placed on attention because in a democratic society, the way you transform politics is uh, one person at a time. And um, yeah, so I wonder, I wonder what you think the individual role is in shifting our, shifting our, 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 our politics um, to include the value of human attention and, and a more robust measurement of what a healthy economy looks like. Yeah, we're, this is part of the, I guess, the dance here, the tension between the personal choice and the political. One thing we like to, um, or the systemic you know, changes, one thing we like to um, decouple is that, say, silence and solitude have to be done. You know, only mm. alone that really that this can be done together. And so even though it might be our, in our personal lives that we're looking to make some of these changes, we can do that as family members, as friends. We can do that as co-workers and co-conspirators as well. And if you're me, anyway, it's a lot more fun that way. <laughs> so um, it's actually a friend in um, San Quentin, Death Row, Death Row uh, Jarvis J. Masters, we mentioned earlier on who points us to, towards the sphere of control, that which we can control. And often it's our personal practices we have the most command over. Even he has that, even being in a cell 23 hours out of a day. But he says, you know, I can quiet my, uh, I can quiet the noise by quietening my response to the noise, and we can do that. So we look at where that pers- those personal practices are and then where we have influence. So maybe we're in relationship and we're just trying to change the default around here. You know, my my mother and her wife moved here for a little bit and when they moved out to the West Coast and they had all their notifications on binging, pinging. I mean, everything, that was just their, you know, they updated their technology. The default went to noise and it didn't bother them at all. And if they were just in their own house and they, you know, it, now that they're settled into their own place in Petaluma, they're, they're probably, they have all that stuff binging and pinging. It doesn't bother them because... It's subjective, right? But when they came in here, I had to have that kind of difficult conversation with them. <laughs> a little awkward, right? But, you know, so to really take that time to have, you know, a conversation with those around you, on, you know, on the default and how the and the real true cost and impact. And then in the workplace, you know, here we are, we're trying to get this work to, done together. But what are we, what kind of um, setting do we really have for us to work? Are we back-to-back meetings? Is everything, you know, is is the idea generation really defaulting to who's the loudest and the fastest all the time? Are we really inviting in new thinking or is that that kind of brainstorming really just reinforces conventional thinking? So, where we really get honest with ourselves and knowing that also the system is set up to make noise. So, there's a lot of work to be done, but we can take our little piece and do it. We can collaborate together. We can make it fun and we will get the riches of that. Because that shared silence really deepens a relationship to ourselves, to the natural world around us, and to one another. It's worth it. That's so worth it. Um, let's, um, if you would, uh, give our listeners some accessible, um, easy to implement ways that they can incorporate 
silence into their lives. There's a whole list in the book. You should buy the book. You should read it, spend time with it. I'm going to do the audiobook now that we've gone through the um, some of the main points that I wanted to cover with you. Um, I love especially a book like this. Uh, and you mentioned you have a terrific narrator. Yeah, um, we love him. First of all, if you're still with us, Politicology listener, dear, thank you. Um, because you're, you know, we talk about politics a lot on the show, but we do it in a, you know, in a professional practitioner, mechanical horse race <laughs> kind of messy way. We do, we do it all right. Um, because politics is just a big word in a big world. Um, but if you're here now and you're listening to this episode, um, I am, I am, I am grateful that you're still here because this is the good stuff. This is the juice. Um, this is this this is what really makes me come alive. So, um, if someone is listening now and they have maybe recognized from this conversation that <laughs> that they are overwhelmed, um, that there's uh, an abundance of internal chatter and external stimuli, and maybe a tightness in the you know, stomach or your chest or your breathing is short. They they recognize those signs. Are there a few quick, easy to easy to implement ways that they can begin to um, to to find silence, to to practice silence in their lives, and then you know, between now and when they pick up the book, <laughs> Lee, you want to lead off with your confession? Yeah, I'll start with the confession. <laughs> so. My confession is that um, I was a smoker, and it's not so much that I was a smoker that I'm confessing to. It's just that I loved it. I loved <laughs> the sensory experience of smoking, of that first drag and the sizzle of the embers, and then the deep exhale and watching the smoke through the air, through the light shafts, through the sun. And what I loved about it was the quiet I got throughout the day taking that smoke break back when, before people took their phones out on their smoke break, which I guess they do now, which seems criminal. <laughs> yeah. And I'm glad I quit. But, but when I did quit, and when many and most of us did quit, we also quit those moments of quiet. So we look, and in the chapter we have a, um, I'm sorry, in the book we have a chapter called A Healthy Successor to the Smoke Break, like, how can we invite in those moments? So these are more the micro moments where we can reset, reconnect why we're here, what we're doing, what matters, all those things. So that can be as simple as stepping outside in the natural environment, in the, in the, in the rays of the sun, listening to the trees, to the birds, or to nothing in particular. And just letting, just letting the sound kind of dissipate and listening for silence, which is actually an ancient... Indian practice called Nada Yoga, listening to the sound, the unstruck chord, the sound of silence. We also point people towards um, just the activities they're doing throughout a day. If they could just slow them down, add like 10% more, like slow it down a little bit slower, a little bit more time to whatever they're doing. So maybe that's making coffee in the morning. Maybe it's your coffee ritual to bring a little bit more presence and attention to that activity. And you, instead of, you know, kind of rushing through with grinds going everywhere and water and milk spilling, you know, just like slow it down 10%. You have that much time. And then when you do find yourself in a long line or in traffic or whatever, to refrain from 
stuffing more content in your brain at that moment, reaching for your phone, maybe listening to the, you know, whatever it is, the radio, whatever, and just appreciating the silence, that unstructured moment, you know, granted it's not what you planned, but it's an unstructured moment and there's so few of those now. Can you just take in the surroundings, maybe connect with another human and appreciate the silence there? Those are a few little personal practices, yeah. And then what else, any other thoughts? Sure, yeah. We we also recommend, you know, we offer the idea of folks going a little bit deeper from time to time. Lee mentioned some kind of healthy successors to the smoke break. But there's also, you know, say you have a day or even half a day you can take off. We have a practice we call take your to-do list for a hike which was inspired by an acoustic mm-hmm. ecologist named Gordon Hempton, who told us that he left you know, his desk where he worked, where he lived in Seattle, and went to the most remote place he could get to in a day. He brought his to-do list with him. And once he got to that most remote place in this temperate Pacific Northwest rainforest, he got quiet, not just in his surroundings, but really breathed, really took in the sound of the silence. Really, as Lee mentioned, listened to the silence. And then when he pulled out his to-do list, he crossed off everything that didn't really matter. And from that vantage point, a whole lot, he realized, it didn't really matter. That seemed to matter when he was back at his desk. And in that deep <laughs> silence, he was able to cross off about five months of professional commitments. Just cross them off because he tuned into the silence. So it's about shifting the perspective from time to time, listening to the silence, which research at Duke Medical School and elsewhere shows actively listening to the silence in this way grows neurons in the hippocampus, the parts of the brain associated with memory. So we look at those those deeper practices too. We also, you know, as Lee mentioned before, The power of silence is magnified when it's shared. So we look at communal practices. We look at at practices for families, for work with young children and our partners and playtime. And we look at, at workplaces. We spend a lot of time at looking at what it means to build a culture that honors quiet time in a workplace. And one thing we explore, you know, back to the kind of political roots of this show is that in 1787 at the Constitutional Convention, the delegates had a giant mound of dirt placed outside the beating hall, the convention hall, because they wanted an earthen noise barrier that would keep out the sounds of the conversations on the streets and vendors and the sounds of carriages, because they recognized that they needed a container for intense deliberation and thinking. They recognized that together, even though they were doing their work together, they needed that deep, profound quiet. So we juxtapose that with, you know, working on Capitol Hill today or during the years I was there, you know, the, the <laughs> five years ago, you know, TV's blasting, whether it's, you know, Fox News or MSNBC, constant bells ringing, nonstop conversations in open plan offices, the assumption that we'll be always on, on the ready, responding to emails and urgent text messages. It's the polar opposite of the cognitive conditions of the container that was created when they were doing the work of writing the constitutional convention, you know, writing the constitution. So we look at the question of like, you know, what would it be like to 
honor that we can have cultures of quiet. You know, we can we can recognize other people's needs for quiet. And somewhat ironically, that often starts with a conversation. It often starts with a conversation about what's the quiet that we need in order to do deep work? What's the quiet that we need in order to feel well in our minds and bodies? So we explore what that would look like in a workplace, and we get into specific ideas for what we think of as experiments. You know, like maybe that experiment is having a wordless brainstorming session, or maybe there's a little bit of context given, and then people sit together in silence. And even the report outs, or even the idea generation, happens with post-it notes without speaking, which has this way of preserving cognitive space. And dealing with, addressing that tyranny of the fastest and loudest that Lee spoke about before. There's uh, just one other thing I wanted to touch on before we um, before we wrap up, and I want to be mindful of your time, which is psychedelics. We don't have to spend very much time. I think maybe uh, we could just give people a taste of where psychedelic research intersects with this work. And if it's okay with you, I'd love to bookmark a conversation uh, to come back and and talk about uh, psychedelic, psychedelic research. And it's a huge conversation, one I'm really personally interested in. And um, but I'd love for people to know that there is a this is that's part of this conversation and maybe you can give them the a primer. Um, before we go. Yeah, thank you so much for your interest in that too. And we're, since there is so much being said uh, and so much being learned about um, expanded states of consciousness and through the use of psychedelics, we're interested in participating in that and not in any way romanticizing uh, it or seeing it as a panacea in any way. That's certainly not my personal experience with it. The research is really fascinating. When we got into the neuroscience, the mute button for the mind, we call the chapter, the neuroscience of silence. We found that really one of the places where the most is being understood about the mind when when it is quiet was through the studies taking place um, with psilocybin use and other use, you know, putting someone in an fMRI machine and looking at their brain. And initially, uh, Robin Carhart-Harris, who was pioneering some of that work in the UK and now here in the Bay Area, guessed, um, well, he hypothesized that the brain would look like a dreaming brain, which I think is mm-hmm. legitimate if you've used those materials. It's a legitimate assertion. But what he found is that really what was happening is the default mode network was deregulating, less active. And in that space, um, there was just more of a quietening of the egoic self and more of a sense of connecting to a broader world entities around, you know, just sort of feeling more connected and more egoically small. And that that experience is quietening to us. It's actually rather enjoyable to us. And it's not so different than what we experience in flow states, in peak moments of meditation, in peak moments of our lives, moments of awe. In fact, these these um, psychedelic states and these other states I just named uh, share some common uh, mental states, they, they share some commonality and are being studied as self-transcendent experiences under an umbrella term by, it's, like a, it's kind of an emerging area of science and studies. So, because we can't really capture someone in a mystical state to see what then is happening in their brain or even in a flow state, you know, when they're on the court and, you know, getting all the back, 
baskets, you know, <laughs> shooting, getting all those baskets. But we can, you know, if people are willing, give them some of these substances, put them in an fMRI machine and see what's happening in the brain and see how that's similar or different and how that might look like what we call internal quiet anyway. Building on that, Lee, you know, there's a, there's a real natural connection between the theme of this book and the kind of psychedelic renaissance that's happening in the culture, including even in politics with a lot of the reforms that are happening. Because, as we mentioned, going back to the beginning of this conversation, the genesis of this book was just this feeling like what we have been doing isn't working, whether that's in mental health, whether that's in technology, whether that's in the economy, whether that's in ecology. And people are turning, including some very surprising people, are turning to psychedelics now out of a recognition that those old models aren't working. But for us, it's really important to point out that psychedelics aren't a panacea. You know, when people go and they work with psychedelics or sacred plants, often it amplifies what's already happening in the consciousness, which can often be a whole lot of noise. So in the book, we talk with longtime psychedelic psychedelic practitioners and entheogenic work practitioners and, and look to some of our own experiences in what it means to be able to navigate the noise in those amplified states. Because it's in the amplified states, these psychedelic and entheogenic states, that it's often possible to skip that five years of silence that Pythagoras asked for and jump right in, which, you know, some people might feel is a shortcut or a cop-out, but we're living in interesting times. We're living in times that require really radical approaches sometimes. So this is something that we explore in the book, you know, which really gets to, again, this idea of silence as presence. The spaces where we could tune into silence as not just the absence of noise, but this presence unto itself. This pure potentiality, as is the meaning of this Japanese word, ma, this space from which the ideas, generative solutions emerge. That is a beautiful place to leave the conversation today. I think, um, Lee and Justin, I'm so grateful for your presence and attention today. Um, I usually ask uh, our guests where everybody can find them on the internet, but I'm not sure if you want to be found on the internet, why don't you, uh, <laughs> why, don't, why don't you tell, why don't you tell everybody where they can follow your work and, um, and where they can get the book. It's a little off yeah. brand run. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we can be found at Estrella strategies. That's a S T R E A strategies where we like to do our work with, um, organizations and bringing more quiet, uh, and to their problem solving and solutions. So the book is there. The book can be found um, anywhere you buy books, Amazon, Bookshop, all those places. And you're about to go down the Audible um, audio I, uh, thing. And yeah. Prentice Oniyemi, our reader, we are so thrilled by. And so if you're an audio, audio person, you might like taking it in that route. Yeah. Lovely. And Politicology listeners, if you like this episode, I'd love to hear from you personally is always uh, delightful to hear your feedback on our episodes, but this one in particular, I'd love for you to um, tell me if this resonated with you. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. 
If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.